0: Hello. Um, welcome, everybody. Thank you very much for coming on a wet evening. Uh, my name is Judy Wiseman, I'm a Professor of um, Sociology here at the London uh, School of Economics. And I'm just incredibly delighted and excited uh, to welcome um, Walter Powell here. Should I keep calling you Walter? You actually? can call
1: me Woody. So I'll nice. call you Woody.
0: Okay. Um, to the LSE uh, today. Professor Powell is a Professor of Education, Sociology, Organisational Behaviour, Management, Science, Engineering and Public Policy at Stanford University and he's Faculty Co-Director of the Centre on Philanthropy and Civil Society and he works across really uh, the broad areas of organisation, theory, economic sociology and the sociology of science is really one of the sort of leading figures of American sociology. He's incredibly prolific, highly cited, has got um, a list of honorary degrees. And like um, everyone else who's thought about or worked in or taken an interest um, in the sociology of organisations, I've followed his work for years, which is not a comment on how long we've been around, but really for decades. And it's impossible to talk about the role of social networks in innovation and how knowledge is transferred across organisations without referring uh, to his work. So I'm really very much looking forward to hearing how he applies this approach to, I think, what's a relatively new topic for him, or certainly I don't know about it, um, on social media and social change, analysing debates over valuation. Um, I hope you'll switch your phones off, of course, and um, as usual after the lecture, we'll have plenty of time for... Uh, questions and discussion which I very much uh, look forward to. So um, let us welcome um, and Woody Powell's lecture.
1: Okay. Well good evening and thanks for coming. Um, this is a project that... Uh, uh, I'm about two years old, um, and it's done with um, um, computer scientists at, uh, at the VEU in Vienna, um, Achim Moberg, and um, a young sociologist at uh, the University of Potsdam, uh, Valeska Korth. Valeska was a postdoc with me at, uh, at Stanford for, uh, for two years. And we um, wanted to start understanding um, the debates that are sweeping the, the world, particularly the world of um, of nonprofits, of international development, of microfinance, of education, about measuring social impact. And, and so what I want to do tonight is a series of things. Um, and I'm, I'm going to do it moderately slowly, and if I see that you're catching what I'm doing, I'll, I'll pick up the pace. Um, but I'm going to use um, this substantive topic about you know, who is contributing to debates over the measurement of social impact um, and who's driving it and to what effect um, as a way to also begin to use new kinds of um, data and build some new theory. Um, So one of the things that um, I'm very interested in, this is a project, uh, um, it's quite a um, lengthy one, I've been trying to understand how things move, how things flow, how things emerge and change over time. Um, and so I'm going to talk tonight about this idea of proto-institutionalization, something that is in the early stages of birth, but not fully formed yet. Okay? And so how do you capture a snapshot of something going through this transformation? I think we have some tools for doing that. Um, and the novel methods are, are an attempt um, to try to combine precisely what Judy talked about, relational methods, that is the standard tools of social networks with discursive research, linguistic tools, computational linguistics to do topic networks. And to think not just about, you know, I know Alex, Alex knows me, but Alex and I think about things in a particular way, and it turns out you do too. We wouldn't have known that from our relational connections, but if we read the content of your writing, you might pick that up. So we want to see what we can learn by combining those two. And then the last piece, which I think is um, uh, uh, a fun part, is we use web pages and I'm going to make a case that I think uh, web pages are really powerful and important new way in which organizations represent themselves to the world we increasingly, think about it, interact with some organizations only through their webpage. It's the only contact you uh, have with them. But I'm not talking about just Amazon or your bank or the airlines, uh, but you know, think of Doctors Without Borders. If you wanted to make a donation, if you wanted to apply for a job, if you wanted to read about their work in Haiti, if you wanted to look at their most recent assessment, of, Of um, conflict zones in Sierra Leone you do it through the web page okay and so can we use the content of web pages um, as new ways to try to think about the representation that uh, that organizations make and I don't mean here's the tricky part of the work and and sort of you want to use the big data phrase that's certainly appropriate I don't just mean the face page I mean the hundreds are, in several cases, tens of thousands of PDFs stored on web pages. So the full content that goes in, can you scrape that material, and then use that as raw material to uh, uh, to analyze? Okay. So let me do the setup a bit. Um, uh, oh, and let me one other thing that um, you well know, sort of in keeping, if you will, with. Um, uh, with, with Judy's work in science and technology studies, the other feature of web pages that's, that's really important to realize is how performative they are. It's not just that you have this contact with a web page, but now through blogs, through Twitter, through webinars, through chat rooms, the organization expresses itself, interacts with its public, and is transformed through that process. And so, in that sense, I think you know web pages are a very unusual kind of identity statement. So, much of um, organizational sociology tries to think about how do you analyze the structure of a field, okay? And so, what does the medical field look like? What does the legal field look like? They take this idea from, from uh, um, Pierre Bourdieu, and, you know, one definition of a field is it's a community of organizations that shares a common meaning system. And so, here we see work by... Uh, uh, um, uh, Renata Meyer or by John Moore very much following in a Borduzian way trying to think of what are the ways in which members of a field share come in, um, a common set of meanings, but oops sorry went backwards, um, but a field is also a web of interaction. It's a set of organizations that interact um, frequently and faithfully, some guys said many years ago, uh, with one another. And so these are the two ways that people have historically thought about fields. What I want to try to do tonight is show you, I think you can combine the two. You can do both the relational and the discursive side. So that's the goal for uh, um, uh, for this evening, to see if if that's possible to do that. Um so one reason I think it's important to try this is the way in which fields are structured and composed is very much altered and changing in the 21st century. They're no longer located around a single dominant type of profession or organization. Um very different kinds of organizational forms now collaborate and compete within particular areas. Um, Fields are organized much more around debates, a field of debate over climate change, um, and much work in fields is trying to create and define new definitions. And so the boundaries of fields are much more porous, membership is more fluid, um, and I wanna argue that very different kinds of mechanisms of influence are in place, and so can we begin to capture some of those uh, mechanisms. So social impact is on, if you're in the nonprofit sector, uh, it's on the tip of your tongue. Um, I was um, teaching in Berlin last month and I went to a a gathering of foundation presidents and and cabinet ministers uh, for a discussion about it. And they said, you know, it hasn't reached Germany quite yet but it's in Scandinavia, it's in England, it's in the US, it's coming, you know, we have to start. And, and it's about how do you develop performance metrics, right? And, and how do you, you know, show that your program or your department or your school or your hospital, um, and it's in the newspapers, it's on the tip of people's tongues in a much more profound way than before. Um, The evaluation of outcomes now takes priority over good intentions. It's not enough to, um, you know, just be a well-meaning person and a charitable person. You have to say, did my donation uh, uh, make a difference? And the mantra, particularly in the world I live in, in California, but, you know, fairly broadly, is scaling. How do you, if you have a success, how do you make it bigger, and how do you ensure that that it continues? Um, And what you see with this debate is three very different communities that had previously not had a lot of contact with one another suddenly engaged in joint exploration. So you have the traditional world of civil society um, and where discussions, you know, Jürgen Habermas's discussion about the public good, uh, concerns about social justice, uh, historically have been paramount. We have increasingly a very, you know, Expanding, I'll say, uh, maybe would go more than that. Um, uh, uh, influence from the world of science—you know, the, the the hottest work in, in the U.S. in uh, in economics comes out of the MIT Poverty Lab, um, and and the sense that you know scientific research has to have you know a consequence for uh, for international development, for school funding, and the like, and we suddenly have a large sector, particularly in the United States, venture capital, young gazillionaires becoming philanthropists, in the UK it's more people from private equity moving into this, but this idea that if we can just make these you know, nonprofits and, and uh, non-governmental organizations run more like a business, they'll be more effective. All three of these groups are in you know, fairly constant contact. Um, They used to be separate, now what we want to see is what are the ways that they're talking to one another. So I'm gonna use that topic to try to figure out what kinds of organizations and what ideas um, uh, have become the basis of communication and are they facilitating the transfer of ideas? It's possible. Is it some spheres like management are trying to colonize civil society? Is it science trying to define the debate? Um, So what is the nature of the communication? That's what we want to try to tackle tonight. Okay, so three different worlds and with trademarks, if you will. Civil society, a world of trust, charity, participation, democracy, public good, the world of science, uh, randomized controlled trials, experiment, assessment, framework, evaluation, the world of uh, uh, management, outcomes, efficiency, best practices, these are the kind of code or keywords we're gonna call them. And if you look on web pages, there's just literally an explosion of them talking about these topics and you can't go a day if you sign up for these kinds of things without getting hit with webinars, without getting newsletters. Um, without, and sometimes I worry how in the world people in some of these organizations have time to actually do their tasks for all the webinars that they uh, uh, are bombarded with. Um, so that's the topic we're going to look at. Now, how do we think about doing that? So I want to step back for a moment, and, and remember I said I wanted to study things in process, how they move, all right? Um, so I don't want you to think that this is a transformation that's happened, all right? This might just be a lot of talk. This might be the early phases of something. So I want you to think about this moment as a kind of, if you will, an interregnum. Um, what's an interregnum? people from European parliamentary uh, countries know very well, it's the period between an election and when an actual government is formed. You've had the vote but nobody won enough uh, uh, to to take power Um, and so there's a period of negotiation. Sometimes those resolve themselves rather quickly Sometimes, think of the Belgian case, a year and a half, it goes on. And sometimes they reverse, and another election gets called. This is a moment that looks like that. Lots of ideas are floating around, um, and many different approaches are are being debated. um, And a challenge for any participant is, how do I sort through this welter of ideas and try to think about um, what I should be doing and how might I find common ground with funders, with consultants, with people who are building capacity. No single organization, not even the Gates Foundation, has the power to say it's my way or the highway. It's gonna be done in a particular way. And even places like the Gates Foundation are learning. Maybe they have to influence with soft power more than coercive power. So there's a shift in the kinds of mechanisms. So this is what I mean by proto-institutionalization. It's not resolved yet. It's in motion, and I want to try to capture that. Okay. Um, so what are mechanisms of proto-institutionalization? I mentioned soft power. Agenda setting is a really important one. Very different kinds of skills. One... Notable one is convening, creating safe spaces where people can come meet, exchange ideas, create new visions. Um, uh, A second one is proselytizing, virtually, you know, Every person on the consulting side, on the certification side, these are all people with their toolkits that they're trying to get other people to um, um, uh, to buy. Some of these are snake oil salesmen, saleswomen, you know, that that have their latest uh, um, you know framework or scheme. Um, others are much more serious, thoughtful engaged people who actually are willing to learn from their clients and constituents. Um, And then finally, you know, I come from a world of um, uh, uh, earthquake zones and one of the things we spend a lot of time um, doing with our homes and our buildings is retrofitting, you know, kind of increasing the capacity to wobble, to, uh, to take on different kinds of stresses, and, and some of the organizations involved are like those in earthquake zones that try to, you know, build capacity in this regard. So if we think about these mechanisms, causes us to rethink some ideas um, in the field, you know, in the area of work around fields. Now there's a long literature that used to talk about how our fields influence their influence through coercive pressures, governments telling organizations what to do, normative pressures, professional schools training people in a particular way, mimetic, the kind of Carnegie school, look left, look right, what are people around you doing? You kind of copy them as a consequence. But I want to suggest those are changing to this new set of, uh, of mechanisms convening where we're going to have much more role for associations and foundations are playing a much larger role in this process. Proselytizing is what media bloggers do and what standard creators and standard setters. Think about in just your recent lifetime the number, the incredible number of things that you can be certified for, you know, certified for fair trade, for um, organic, for um, lead uh, uh, for buildings. You know, there's an entire industry that's sprung up in the past 10, 15 years about certification. Those are not done by states, but they're done increasingly by professional associations. And then finally, there are these retrofitters, the foundations, the funders, consultants that, that are increasingly Providing capacity. So these are the things we want to try to look at. Now, how do I do it? I want to claim that, you know, like a doctor taking an x ray, I'm going to show you how we take an x ray, all right, to try to study this process. And so we're going to identify organizations that are involved in this discourse. We're going to use keywords, I'll explain that, um, to capture the, the language and the narrative that's going on. We're going to look at text to figure out what is the linguistic, you know, phrases that get used. And then what we want to see is if there's any sign of what we might call a polyglot community being formed that can speak at the intersection of these different worlds. Okay, so you might think of, you know, the imagery here. It could be, you know, um, Valeska and I have done this a lot, you know, and and if you're interested into you know like ethnic identification, toggling across ethnic identities, or if you're thinking of national borders, an area like Alsace or the Saar, you know is it France, is it Germany, which of the two going back and forth, how do people move back and forth? Those are the kinds of questions. Does one language take over another? Or does a new hybrid language develop? You might also think um, about the contrast between pidgin and creole, that one community speaks, the other nods their head and says, we'll take money. Um, you know, That's pidgin, basically. It's how people buy things. Um, or creole, do they create a new language in the process? And that's what we want to try to capture. Okay. So, how do we do that? We do it with web pages, and we're gonna do it in a couple of ways, okay? Um, but I, as I said, I think web pages are a wonderful new source of, of information on an organization. They're live, they're real. Um, I trust them more increasingly than I trust annual reports. Um, I trust them more, you know, kind of remarkably, uh, uh, than you do if you had archival records of meetings. Um, web pages are continually refreshed and updated, but you know, when I first started beginning to work on this, people said yeah but they 're just pr they 're just you know, they 're just the fashion that people put on, but that is less and less the case as more and more people participate in this process, and as web pages take on more and more democratic features. Only, I think four years ago, I had an undergraduate come to me and she said, I wanna study the social media practices of the largest um, global foundations. And I said, ah, come on, Patricia, that's not gonna be a very good senior thesis. These are really secretive organizations. She says, well, I've got a job at the Gates Foundation being a blogger this summer. I'm like, you what? You know, and sure enough, that's precisely, and the first couple of years, these are just precisely that, hiring college juniors to do the blogging. Now they're full time jobs, and you know, chief communication officers, webmasters are um, very important positions. So you begin to see how much web pages become you know, the way in which people have contact. Okay, but web pages have something else they have hyperlinks, okay? And a hyperlink is the connection of one organization to another okay and so what the hyperlinks are like in one respect is citation networks in academic papers okay and hyperlinks are also like you know, friendship networks on Facebook and so they tell you who you're connected to now what they don't do this is you know there are lots of people who um, uh, two examples for you think of you know those of you who are on Facebook you have sort of roughly three sets of friends, right? You have your workmates, you have your grandparents and your family, right? Um, And then you have friendship groups. And every now and then something creepy happens where you know your uncle becomes friends with someone you went to school from high school uh, with, and you just think, that's so weird. Well, you know, what's gone on is that it's bridged across these networks, or academic papers, citations. It's true that 90% of citations are positive, um, but there are lots of different ways you can cite a paper. It could be ceremonially, it could be dismissively. It could, in a minority number of cases, be critical. So what we the web links are a starting point for us, but we can't use the web links to tell us much about meaning. Okay. Um, in related work, we're using the drop-down menus of web pages as examples of contemporary organization charts. So instead of the old-fashioned organization chart, if you use the drop-down menus, you get a clue into what units in an organization are the most influential and where the most staff and, and resources are. And you can also use Google Analytics to see how actively a web page is used and how many people go to it on a daily or, uh, or weekly basis. Okay, so we create a web crawler. And what the web crawler does is it needs a starting point And in our case, we talked to experts in the field in in the U.S., U.K., and Canada, United Nations. We got a list of organizations that everyone agreed on. They're deeply involved in this area of social impact and evaluation and assessment. We set the crawler loose from those organizations, and what the crawler does is follow the hyperlinks. Okay, And it travels out. First go round comes back with like 4,000. And we're like, um, hmm, is this really going to work? But then we realized many of those were, you know, the Department of Sociology at the London School of Economics, the Department of Economics, the Department of Anthropology, you know, they're sub features of a page, and then you've got to figure that out. Lots of them are things like the New York Times, The Guardian, Wall Street Journal. So those are conduits, not the organization. So we slowly prune and then refine, and we generate a snowball sample through that. Then we go to the web pages, five of us, um, and sit down and look to see in the content of the web pages, are they talking about in a serious way, evaluation, social impact and then we code the organizations. We're able to get, because it's Anglo-American sample, we're able to get the tax filings of these organizations. So we can build up a database on the size of the organization, their resources, what have you. Okay? So when we do that, we get quite a diverse sample. And I think that's the beauty of this. If, if any of you set out tomorrow to figure out, well, what does a field look like? Okay? You would have a much more constrained and confined population than you came up with. We ended up with organizations that range from two to 200 years old single person blogs to giant multinationals with 250,000 employees, 56% nonprofits, but also we've got for profits, consulting firms in particular, but not exclusively, some branches of government big important role of transnational organizations, and I think most interestingly, about 15% of the sample are non-organizations. They're social movements, um, they're conferences, they're annual events that keep things going. So those would almost never show up in in organizational sampling. Um, So lots of variety in terms of the sample. Um, When we map it in terms of web links, This is what it looks like, you know, a very complicated um, uh, plate of spaghetti, okay, doesn't tell us all that much um, except for a couple of things, one, it is a very densely connected, interconnected world, okay, so the average um, path length, if you're studying the World Wide Web is not six degrees of separation, it's 4.8, in our sample it's actually every organization in the sample is on average 2.3 clicks removed from the other. Okay, So this is a world in which there are lots of connectivity. Um, when we map it, I'll give you a different way you could see it, um, and that gives you a sense of the variety of types. We have you know, foundations, we have social movements, we have operating charities, we have intermediaries, consultants, um, and... Uh, uh, various publications, government agencies, international organizations, businesses, blogs, and publishers, so great variety, and these are the web links among them. Now, a single organization that shows up in the sample, I'll help you you fix on it, this is UNICEF. And the gray behind that is the overall set of networks in the field, the blue are the web links that UNICEF sends out. The red are those that reciprocate, okay? So let's use the Facebook example. These are the friend requests in blue. The red are the ones that, uh, that connect back. Um, in a citation network, I cite you, you cite me back, okay? So the red is, you know, there's something going on in terms of you know, the content of the tie that, that's uh, consequential. All right. So, next step, we want to use the web pages to try to figure out what's the language that the different entities, I'll, I'll say organizations most of the time, but, but you've got to realize some of these are not organizations, they're movements. So, entities is probably more correct. I want to think about the text on the web page as the way in which an organization represents itself. And we're going to find a tool that helps us characterize those representations. And so to do that, I take a phrase from the old Welsh uh, uh, political philosopher, Raymond Williams, um, and he talked about keywords as significant indicative words in certain forms of thought that make up a distinctive domain-specific vocabulary, okay? And so what's fun about doing this keyword analysis is the keywords are loaded with politics, you know, they convey lots of things about cultural position. And, borrowing from Manuel Castells, we need to think about cultural battles as, in fact, the political struggles of the information age, and that's what we're going to try to do. So, what we're going to do is go through a process of identifying keywords to a vocabulary. We're going to mine the text to extract those keywords and we're gonna use those to create linguistic communities. We're gonna study the relationship of those communities, okay? Lots of steps in this process, but hopefully it unfolds clearly. Um, Oh, and just for those worried about the technical part, um, we will do a co-occurrence analysis of every keyword to make sure it's spoken and clusters with other words. So that it's not baby talk. It is, in fact, you know, a coherent set of um, uh, phrases that people use. And then we're going to control for that expression, normalize it for the size of web pages. You know, obviously, the Gates Foundation, with tens of thousands of PDFs on its web page, speaks many more words. So we have to normalize the... Uh, all right. So the kinds of keywords, I'll show you more, but just so you can fix, you can think of a, a language of association, a language of research, and a language of performance. Okay. The language of association is about political phrases, justice, um, uh, participation, empowerment, human development, women's rights. Um, the language of science is intervention, design, randomized controls, The language of performance is about outcomes and uh, and impact, okay? And so we're going to take each organization and not say, because you're an NGO, you must be associational, but rather we're going to let the way in which they talk about themselves position them, okay? So imagine a hypothetical organization that 20% of the talk on its web page was associational, 30% was scientific, and 50% would be managerial. It's gonna get located here, okay? We're gonna do this in a three-dimensional triangle. I've seen work like this done in biology that uses 12 dimensions. I've seen others using seven. We have three communities for this as starting point. That's what we're gonna look at. So that's how we're gonna locate people in terms of their dialogue, all right? Um, And we wanna see if people primarily talk in one language or if there's a group that actually speaks this polyglot language it turns out in this sample to get into the sample you at least have to talk associational talk Okay, so the actual if you will true north um, is not at the middle which would be here 33, 33, 33, but for the whole sample, it's a little bit north. So that associational language is much more the dominant um, uh, uh, discourse. All right, so let me give you an idea of the kinds of organizations. Um, So this is the distribution of them. They're very few in the scientific and management side that are way far on the edge, and that makes sense. They are trying to engage with civil society. There are a handful in civil society saying, we're, we're hesitant to embrace this, but we're, we're standoffish, if you will. Well, who are the kinds of organizations that, uh, uh, that show up? Um, in civil society, you see things like Bread for the World, Kiva the Soros Open Society Foundations, the Global Fund for Women. On the science side, the Gates Foundation clearly positioned there, Doctors Without Borders, if you read their web pages and their reports, they're very much about measuring effectiveness and trying to figure out what were the um, kinds of um, interventions they've done. The British DFID shows up in this domain, the RAND um, Corporation, the RAND Foundation, the World Bank, you know, so good. I see people nodding their heads. These are sensible kinds of locations. When we did this, we felt quite good about it. Down on the uh, uh, management side, you get consultancies like Accenture, but you also get the Bridgespan Group, which is a nonprofit consultancy that's a spinoff from Bain. You get these certification agencies like Fair Trade USA, and you get the rating services like, uh, like GiveWell. And in the middle, you get organizations that are much more, if you will, kind of hybrid. So you get Acumen, which is... A non-profit venture capital fund that invests in businesses in Africa and Southeast Asia that will break even. Um, And so, you know, is it a for-profit? Is it a non-profit? What is it? Glass Pockets. It's an organization that urges foundations. and investors to be more transparent. Um, Robin Hood Foundation, its name gives you some sense of uh, uh, what its goals are. So those are the way the communities. Um, in terms of the use of the language, remember I mentioned associational gets more, uh, managerial, scientific, slightly less. Um, so what are the kinds of words that are used most often? This is just something I did crudely for this talk, took the top five word Mixes that show up and you impact data mission evaluation performance when all those are all from this world of evaluation Then you get charity trust democracy advocacy participation justice commitment. That's an associational cluster Monitoring framework evidence outcome you begin to see okay So these are the kinds of terms that are used most frequently by the organizations so let me uh, cut to the chase, I'll try to do this quickly, um, I think it's pretty clear but hopefully this will, um, I'm going to do something I've never tried before, so I'm trying out this new method um, and um, and if it works, um, great, it'll hopefully turn into a paper sometime soon. So I'm going to look at the co-occurrences of terms and I'm going to turn the networks into word networks, okay, and I want to see what kinds of words cluster together and what we can do. So the nodes here are actually terms, not organizations, and the strength of affiliation is how often those words get used together, okay, you got that? And I'm going to do it in layers, you know, four layers for each community so we can see what the language looks like. All right, so the first is going to be the five terms that all of the entities in the sample use. And this is what the linguistic network looks like. A wide variety, you know, social change, transparency, democracy, charity, mission, sort of one of the most central, performance, participation. You know, this really is a kind of hybrid language of can we have associational and measurement at the same time. What we want to know is what are the ways in which that gets put together? So let's start with civil society. And what you see is that when they think of impact, impact gets tied to mission and very much to justice and trust. So if they talk about impact, it's are we you know, enhancing democratic participation? Notice we're going to see the word participation show up in a minute in science means something very different in the scientific world it means rates of participation in a survey not you know, participation in a, in a democratic deliberation. So see a set of phrases um, that are fairly strongly linked together and that's where they fit into the overall you know, um, network map. Now let's go to the scientific community and you see, again, impact. But impact gets tied to very different things. It gets tied to technical words like survey and data. It gets tied to evaluation and methods. Um, and mission in the scientific world shrinks dramatically. Okay, It's not, you know, they're all about measurement, um, much less than uh, uh, mission. And you can see in terms of where it fits into the, um, uh, to the overall You know, what does the scientific overlay look like in the overall word network? Um, Managerial language is a lot sparser, okay? It's not as thick as the associational, and it's not as thick as the um, uh, uh, scientific. It's mostly around um, uh, performance, impact. There's a little bit of data, but notice, you know, you get mission there. You get monitoring. it's a fairly connected but a much more limited set of terms, and it plays a much more modest role in the overall language. Now, my colleague John Meyer, when I started doing this, John's a, you know, um, He's not a curmudgeon, that's totally unfair. Um a deeply skeptical person about the modern state of affairs, um and thinks, you know, that the world is undergoing extreme rationalization. You know, Meyer, John Meyer is sort of like uh Weber met Foucault, okay? And so his thought was you'd see a pincer movement, that science, management would come together and swallow up civil society. What we actually see is the worlds of science and management are competing definitions. You know, we may well have two kinds of rationalization, but they're very different kinds of rationalization. And there's very little talk, crosstalk, between those two worlds, which you know, to me was rather um, surprising and unexpected. Then we look at that interstitial community, and suddenly you see what's going on there is not a pigeon, but a creole that there's a bridging dialogue. There are many more combinations. The links happen between mission data survey, mission performance, but also values, participation, advocacy, and trust. So those in this interstitial zone, on the borderlands, um, so to speak, are able to converse with the parties on different sides and when we see the overlay you can see how much more central those phrases are into the uh, uh, to the overall conversation. So real quickly the organizations in this interstitial community are much more diverse in form Um, this sort of a surprise to me we try something unusual we use a Gini coefficient usually done in the study of inequality we use a Gini coefficient to measure variety of types of organization and you saw there are about a dozen different kinds of organization the lower the Gini coefficient the more distributed the types of organizations and so not surprisingly for profits play the biggest role in management research organizations in the scientific community um, operating charities and movements in the civil society been in the interstitial a wide variety of different kinds of organizations populated they also, I won't go into this at length, speak very different kinds of language, and those in the interstitial have the widest combination of, um, of word breadth. Now, let me move from the words back to the relational side to finish the picture. So, one of the things we might ask um, is, are the groups in this interstitial group somehow the most connected? Maybe they're there because, you know, they have the most friends. Um, it turns out, not the case. Some of the most influential and powerful organizations, you know, that's measured by node side are in these other communities. So, you know, the expectation that they're somehow the most central is not true. Um, So there are plenty of organizations with high acceptance of bilateral ties in, in the other communities. But then we ask, are they more internally cohesive? So what we try to do is map the set of relations among the communities. And here you see very different things. Basically, you notice in the management community, they don't collaborate with one another. First seems like a surprise, but then you think about it, these are consultants, these are certification agencies. They're all pushing their own cookie. They want people to adopt their practices. They don't want to collaborate with others. Okay. On the scientific side, there are a handful that connect with others, but for the most part, you know, the MIT Poverty Lab, RAN, what have you, Gates, they want people to play by their rules. By contrast, the associational world is more connected, and the most internally cohesive is this interstitial community. And then you ask, you know, you see down here we try to measure the highest average number of um, uh, bidirectional ties, it's highest in the interstitial community. Then we would ask, do they play a bridging role? What is it like in terms of their connections across? And it turns out, quite interestingly, they have the most connections to the other communities. So they're internally cohesive and externally linked um, in a fairly powerful way. Then I began with these different mechanisms, and here you see the strong differences. In the managerial community, what do they do most? They proselytize, you know. They try to tell other people, we're champions of these new metrics, these new measures. Um, In the scientific community, they convene. They have meetings. Um, In civil society, there's both convening and strengthening. The greatest combination of activities is found in this small interstitial community. So what does the X-ray tell us? What do we learn from this very... um, intensive um, analytical exercise you know we see not a differentiation among the communities but a blending of scientific managerial and civic discourses we see this diverse highly connected interstitial community composed of polyglot organizations engaged in these new kinds of activities And we see favorable conditions, you might say, for the emergence of a new community, for a field to be formed. But clearly it's not in place as of yet. So this is a possibility, pregnant with possibilities perhaps, but whether it actually will result in it is not entirely clear. You you capture this uh, as a phrase in the um, the Huron Foundation's uh, annual uh, strategic plan in 2012, the world has changed and so must we. A sense that the world looks different, we have to change with it, but we don't actually know what that new order is gonna look like. So what do we learn? We learn that civil society has not been colonized by the realms of management or science. There are, as I suggested, maybe two distinct very different discourses of rationalization. The associational elements remain critical if you don't uh, engage um, with civic society on its terms. People listen to you less. There's really wide distribution of organizational types in each of the clusters. That surprised us, I'm really excited by that. We find different foundations, Soros and Clinton in civil society in terms of their language. Gates Foundation and the science side. On the management side, the Hewlett and Packard and uh, Kaufman Foundations. Um, we see for-profits appearing in civil society, you know, and then you might think, are those wolves in sheep clothing or are these these new for-profit B corporations that, you know, are, have a social mission alongside a, um, a commercial mission. Um, we see a growing number of international non-governmental organizations like Doctors Without Borders located in the scientific realm. Um, So there's not a one-to-one mapping of organizational form with uh, particular communities. Um, It's clear that convening, or conversing, excuse me, in multiple languages creates convening power while proselytizing appears to impede collaboration And it seems that some degree of collaboration and trust is necessary for um, uh, uh, significant capacity exchange. So no inevitable progression. I stressed that at the beginning. It's not a case that we've reached a stage of convergence. Um, This talk could be ritualistic. Um, uh, I have a a lovely um, elderly colleague at Stanford, George Schultz, he was probably best known as Secretary of state uh, the u s Secretary of Labor. Um, he was also uh, CEO of Bechtel, but when he was a younger man, he was chairman or a Dean of the Graduate School of Business, the University of Chicago, and he was once asked by uh, Charlie Rose what was his hardest job, and he said, "Well, if I'm honest with you, it was being Dean of the business school. I had thirty five sons of bitches that wouldn't listen to a thing I did um, he said but Being Secretary of State was difficult because everyone thought we had this tremendous power. I would get on a plane. I would go um, to Colombia. I would sign an agreement that they would start burning uh, poppy fields, that they would cut back on marijuana distribution, and we'd give them 35 fighter jets. And then I'd climb the steps and get back on the uh, plane. And I was sure they're saying, "There goes that little round monkey who brings us military pl- fighter jets." You know, you give the jets expecting behavior, but do you know if you're going to get it? All right. So So, there's a lot of still talk in this area, okay? Um, There's a lot of loose coupling, and there's still fragmentation. But to the extent that new language develops and new ideas and practices develop, you begin to see this transformation um, that could happen. And the elements we think of emergence of a common language is probably one of the best um, indicators of that. So, thank you. I look forward to your questions.
0: Well, thank you very much. That was um, very interesting and very inspiring and very optimistic, actually. That's, I mean, fantastically optimistic about possibilities of emergence. So... um, I really enjoyed that. Anyway, I'll open the floor up to questions. We've got some roving mics. Um, if you could just say who you are in your affiliation when you ask a question, that would be great. Um, we start over here. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I'm Heidi Rida from Bain & Company. Uh, thank you very much for the very good talk. Uh, I had one question, um, and the question is, what role can social media play to actively create social change, so not only to uh, distribute and and communicate about what they actually do on on other fields, but for example on a topic like ISIS uh, where there's a very strong campaign on the ISIS side uh, that manages to get um, people joining them from Morocco to Uzbekistan to 15 year old girls from Manchester uh, there is a real lack of integrated strategy and social media campaign on, on the other side there's a lack of counter-narrative. So given all these institutions, organizations, uh, etc. that you mentioned, who, how would it work to get a more integrated strategy and counter-narrative on, on a topic like that? Who can play the role, the integrator role there? Um, and, and yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Because at the moment, it seems that nobody is doing it, nor, nor the government, nor the corporates, nor the uh, mm. social media organizations. Thank you very much.
1: Okay. Um. Well, um, if I could answer that, I'd probably be down at Whitehall. So um, uh, let me let me at least start with that, uh, and I'll pick the part, the question apart in two ways. One, you know, you you point to a, a really terrific um, illustration. Um, of the power of social media and you know one of the most frighteningly effective organizations the world at the moment is ISIS in terms of its ability to recruit okay and it has a very strong and powerful consistent message Um, part of what you know this is not a group of set of organizations they're ones thinking about social impact of existing things One of the reasons I said they're in formation rather than settlement um, is they do not have the capacity at the moment to think about how to respond in a unified way to something. Okay, so that we're not there yet. All right, and so the ability of coherent messages to disrupt is still really strong. And and you know one of the things that was so striking to us is how influential small entities, small organizations are in transforming and shaping these debates. Okay, Um, but one of the venues one might imagine that civil society and associational organizations could try to do in response is figure out what is the way to engage with community groups, church groups, schooling groups to offer and develop a contrary message. Um, and to find not people in power to do that, but citizens to do that, okay? And that ability is not there yet, but that would be the kind of response I would think about. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm.
3: Yes. I wonder, is the density of the network and the associations you find in the language Uh, can they suggest or how much can we derive from that on the kind of effects that they may have? For example, um, is there any way that we can get from that picture or from that analysis uh, any sense of which is more powerful type of organization in terms of producing effects? Mm. Very often what we find is language is hijacked by others mm-hmm. for purposes which are not so very clear and they are not so faithful to what people understand by the language. A friend in the Facebook is not what a mm-hmm. p- common people understand yeah. by friendship. Mm-hmm. So uh, what other uh, things would you add to that analysis to uh, somehow get closer to uh, the social impact? Uh, Power is another thing. I don't know if it is already there, and I have not seen it, but there may be other things.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a good question. Um, So a couple of things. Um, Let me um, comment that um, what's not, what's missing, first of all, in the analysis um, is adding data on joint projects. And so if we had... um, data that showed when do different kinds of organizations work together on common projects. Okay, so think about you know, um, where are the places in the world with um, the, uh, the highest percentage of international government development or international non-governmental development organizations. Haiti and Cambodia. You know, there are dozens if not hundreds of different organizations there working at cross purposes rather than collectively. So if you could develop measures of common projects, that would be the, um, the next step there. Um, but let me dial back in two ways. Um, one thing that I think really surprised us um, in terms of creating the sample and, and building the network map of the sample um, was the absence of certain kinds of organizations. You know. There's a surprising, maybe this isn't so surprising in the U.S. context, um, uh, missing role for government. Um, when we find governments in our in our network, they're often smaller Scandinavian countries. They're selected U.S. states, California, Washington. There's a pretty silent role on Washington itself in terms of. There are lots of, you know, the beltway organizations like the World Bank that are there. It's quite striking that the role of government is now increasingly in the the network pictures we have taken over by these transnational organizations. Um, The other key, you know, really powerful player in this process are foundations and this is strongest in the U.S., but it's, it's growing in, in, in its, its consequences in the U.K. Um, you know, if you think about the, the Wellcome Trust and the Gates Foundation together, they essentially own the international public health today, um, do more of it than governments do. That's a striking transformation. And, okay then your last point is a really powerful one you you ask what we think of a lot is the fidelity of language you know friend on facebook is not a real friend part of what we try to do it's not enough but but at least you know methodologically it's a step is this is why this focus on the co-occurrence of words so that you're not just saying single word there's Phrases. There's a whole narrative that has to be constructive, and so you might, if you thought more about the kind of approach we're doing, look at these as the stories these organizations have to tell to attract others. Thank you. That was really that was a good question. Mm. There's one in the middle. Yeah, we we'll
0: one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you happy to take them? <coughs> one? One sure. at a time. Yeah. Um, well,
1: in a minute, we'll maybe take them in clusters. Um, you should tell me. <laughs>
0: well, we've got heaps of time. So. Um, hi, my name's oh, Sanjay. Just wanted to um, check something. I think you one of your major claims was that um, there is this new kind of central group emerging in the middle, this interstitial group. Yes. And that, uh, in light of that, a, a new framework may be needed from the, for them. Um, I I guess what I'm trying to check is I would guess, and maybe this guess is wrong, that that interstitial group is probably quite heterogeneous. Yes. And so then it raises the question to my mind, what sort of framework would you need for them, given that while they might talk about impact in a kind of fairly loosely similar way, they're actually quite different organizations.
1: Um, so, um, that was a lot I tried to pack in in 45 minutes, um, you did a great job of getting parts of it so let me you give me the opportunity to reinforce so this group an interstitial group they're not the most powerful they're not the largest they're not necessarily the most central okay they are incredibly varied in the types of organizations that are there, you know, their social movements, their foundations, their B Corps, their um, uh, various kinds of hybrids, nonprofit venture firm, um, things like that. So they you know, that's why I'm saying it's still a fragmented community, but they actually speak more of a common language than any of the other communities, all right? And their language is more inclusive of terms from the others. So that's where the idea of Creole. And they're the most internally connected as well. So even they're highly diverse, they see each other a lot. These people move now, you see career ladders of movement through these kinds of organizations. And interestingly, they're the ones that create safe spaces where convening can happen. You know, when, when some of these other organizations say, we're gonna have a meeting in Seattle, people show up because well that's what they have to do to get money these others can call and bring people of very different influence and capacity to be in a room together and it's more of a round table than a lecture hall so to speak Um, so you're right that they're heterogeneous but I don't think they're fragmented at this point now are they coherent enough that they have a common identity and common message no um, and what that message could be will be quite interesting to see. Um, but it is one that at the moment combines concern with things like participation and advocacy with impact and measurement. And that's a very unusual combination. We haven't seen that before. So. Mm.
0: Okay, we've got a couple down here. Mm-hmm.
4: It's Leon Wanslim from the sociology department. Um, There's also questions that kind of sh- should help me to, cl- to, to understand better uh, your, your argument. So the first one, you argue that there is a struggle for the definition of what social impact is. So this is, this, this is the first question. Do you, do you think there is an actual struggle going on over the definition of uh, yes. social impact? And yes. that is kind of the driving force of what is going on in the, in this field. Mm-hmm. And then the second question relates perhaps to, to, to the earlier one about, so you used the word influence, so I guess like, how do you understand influence in terms of having control over this definition of, of social impact? Is it, is it something that comes from inside the field or is it something that maybe also comes from links to outside of the field? Um, I mean, this this whole idea of Creole rather relates to something that happens in the field, right? Mm-hmm. So it's something that is created in the field, a new language and if you can create a new language you can to some extent define uh, social impact, but there might also be completely other s- different sources for uh, having influence on this c- uh, definition of social impact. So it's kind of just questions. That no, no, no they're not- really
1: good questions. And um, so... Let me take struggle and and give you a sense. So think of the kinds of words that get used, but get used very differently. So participation in the science side means rates of involvement in a survey. How many people underwent a clinical trial? How many people um, uh, were served? Participation in the associational world is about voice who gets to speak, okay? So those are very different notions, all right? And then if you look at, I didn't linger on these, I went through it very quickly, but, you know, the idea that impact means empowerment in one community, impact means, you know, that a control group uh, and a um, experimental group have different results is impact in another community and then in another community impact is efficiency okay and so what you saw was really diverse meanings associated with impact what you saw in this back to the last question in the interstitial community is the ability to weave those together in different ways okay now I don't as yet um, and, you know, I'd be really interested in ideas about this. How do we move from the relational and discursive to see if projects run by organizations were somehow both more consequential, more democratic and more effective uh, because they come out of these different groups? I know from individual teaching cases and things like that of, you know, the way in which... Gates versus Acumen versus Soros versus Hewlett try to measure impact, that they actually measure it in dramatically different ways. And sometimes poor organizations that get money from all four of them have to go through the torture of filling out four different reports in that way. And so there is, that's what I mean by a struggle, there is a battle to try to define what are the terms of, of assessment. Yeah.
5: Do you want to yes, thank you. So, um, Alex Preda from uh, King's College, London. Actually, my question uh, ties in well with uh, what has been uh, just discussed, namely this idea of uh, struggle or battle of uh, definitions. Um, and um, starting with a simple observation now, websites uh, get periodically updated and changed and uh, uh, the structure can change, uh, new documents uploaded, old documents are taken off and so on and so forth. And this this i think has consequences both of a links of so a network and for the keywords so of a discursive clusters i'm fully aware now that with um, this limited amount of time you couldn't have presented absolutely everything and um, um, I'm also uh, I don't know uh, how, uh, technically speaking methodologically whether this is feasible or not but have you tried to look at the dynamics of these yeah. changes over a period of time in this case we might see where the, the, or how this struggle is being initiated in which of these uh, domains uh, it is actually um, um, conducted and uh, um, who what kind of organizations are the drivers or try to try to
1: Take over in this uh, respect mm-hmm. no? so alex 's question is spot on because what he what he wants to see is he wants you know to take these pictures and turn them into a movie um, and that 's what I would love to do too and, and you know that 's what i 've done with other kinds of um, uh, network pictures in the past that are more based on collaboration alliances um, figuring out movies of words is a lot more challenging,, because you know, how do you find new entrants of terms um, without going back and coding the websites again and coming up with the keywords so one real limitation is that our keyword combinations are, are have been fixed so far okay, and thinking about how they might grow and morph is, uh, is, um, um, is a really important question. Um, We have a a tiny solution to that. I don't think it's the right solution entirely, but it will give you a sense. Um, One thing we've been able to do is look at these new um, hybrid terms that fuse different words together. Okay, so these really popped up in the, and and as you do the kind of computational linguistics, suddenly words like social return on investment, you know. So what they're searching for are words that are equivalent of 20, 25 years ago to social capital. Social capital was sexy because capital, it's physical, social, it's relational, you know. These people are trying to craft terms like that. What we have done, um, it's much easier to do, is periodically follow the web links Um, and there the the question is really interesting the first time I presented this in a computer science um, uh, colloquium um, you know, hands shot up and what about WebRot? Um, I'm like, oh boy, here it comes well, WebRot is referred to when you search for a link it's no longer there Okay, and on the World Wide Web, WebRot is a big deal um, and you know and it 's not surprising things like restaurants turn over like crazy. Um, things come and go you know as businesses all the time we 've searched um, uh, periodically for ours um, of the three hundred and sixty nine the last time we did it this past summer, um, so fairly recently, three hundred and fifty four were still there. And so I was disappointed at the ones that left, and actually the ones that left almost prove our point because they left because they changed form. A for-profit turned into a nonprofit, so it went from a dot-com to a dot-org. A dot-org, you know, a blogger became a consultant. Um, a certification company became a, you know, so what you see is the participants morphing but staying in the field, uh, which was, you know, I'm a geek. So I thought that was totally cool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes.
0: Yeah, Victoria Pelka, um, and I guess my work history was really nicely reflected on your, on your chart. It was super interesting because I found myself working in, I'm currently a, a research consultant, mm-hmm. so I speak the management language. I'm also a master's student at LSE, so I speak the sign, uh, language of science, and I used to work for a charity. And the, your talk made me reflect on how I use the same words but I change the meaning (laughs) depending on where I work. So my question is, um, so you've analyzed who uses what kind of words, but who creates the meaning? Is there any, can you see any thought leaders of who creates the meaning for these similar words? Is it maybe, for example, UNICEF? Is everyone referring to UNICEF when they talk about impact? or would this be a completely different
1: analysis? No, 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 it's very, and and in an important way it's related to to Alex's question because do certain groups own particular phrases and then they proselytize them and others adopt them? We see that, you know, it's very common um, practice. You, many of the for-profits that are deeply involved in civil society are trying to champion and proselytize specific, you know, toolkits and, um, and the like. The way we tackle, you know, the way we would analyze you, where you put on, so to speak, different hats in three different worlds, we would look, what this does is ask, when you say a particular word, say impact, it means something at the LSE, it means something in a consultancy, and it means something new in a charity, and we would capture it by what is the string of words that's associated with it. You are not so multilingual and polyglot that you can say 10 keywords in these three settings and everyone understand them. So you take certain words and pivot in different places and use them. And what we can capture is the different pivots that are involved. Um, but if you think about your career as a spiral, you know, the odds maybe when your next step is you'd end up, you'd be ideally suited for one of these interstitial organizations where there are multiple meanings attached to these. So, yeah, great. You're a perfect illustration of, uh, <laughs> of what we're looking at at the person level. You know, we've been thinking about it at the organization level.
0: Maybe we'll take two now. There's two over here.
4: Uh, Hi, Walter. My name is Tuka. I'm an organizational sociologist sociologist at SOAS, University of London, as well. And I work with the Institute for Global Prosperity at the UCL quite a bit as well. And and so this is a fairly practical question. But um, how can a university institute, for instance, or a department become more like an interstitial organization with all the benefits that that can bring? It's quite interesting um, how that could be done in in a very sort of uh, Proposed way and I wonder if, if one key to that is becoming a bit like an impact hub for instance where you have where you're pretty cohesive and heterogeneous uh, on the inside and then you have these uh, great linkages to the outside world
1: and then there's, there's one there
0: yeah mm-hmm. hi that, that ties in very well with my question um, I'm Gabrielle I work for the Association of Commonwealth Universities so I'm wondering um, since I'm interested in universities, um, whether you uh, included them in uh, the study, uh, so the .edu uh, industry or associated research centers, entrepreneurial centers, whatever, um, and um, if not, if you could extrapolate the study and kind of hypothesize who would be in the interstitial space if the universities were included.
1: Um, so universities are very much in our sample. Um, we decided not to include, say, MIT, but we include the Poverty Lab. Uh, we don't include the University of Pennsylvania, but we do include their Center for um, High Impact Philanthropy. Um, uh, we don't include the University of Oxford, but, we, but Skoll shows up, the Skoll Entrepreneurship Center. So, so the centers at the universities are very much there, and um, overwhelmingly, they're located down in the scientific space, if they publish a journal or a magazine, they're more likely to be in the interstitial and you know is it i mean think about what you 're suggesting you 're saying you want to you know climb down out of the ivory tower um, be you know less in your analytical role and more in engaged role um, hugely challenging for universities, right? We're supposed to talk from high, you know, with, uh, uh, with accuracy and eloquence and, 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 um, uh, and with distance. Um, to be in the interstitial community, you have to, you know, walk the talk and talk the walk, and that, you know, is, is very challenging for universities. The way in which universities, presumably, if you wanted to move in this direction, um, would be the use of the convening power of universities and you know the ability of universities to attract people into relatively safe communities to have discussions um, about unpopular topics. Um, but most of the universities, you know, the, the poverty lab is really unusual in terms of how they have transformed the methodology of economics um, and transformed a generation of young economists in terms of what they're interested in. And I'd say, of our university centers, they are the closest to the interstitial community.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. It, ah, right. I was just going to say, there a last couple? We'll take this one. Any, anyone else? And, and this one. This one, Annabelle oh, has. One. Sorry,
1: right, we'll yeah. take three and that's it. <laughs> that's it. it. Okay. We're done then, Judy. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry.
5: Mm-hmm. Yep. What was your criteria for choosing entities? Uh, and uh, don't you think that it's possible that you would have gotten different results if you chose different entities?
0: Okay, where was the next one? Sorry. Someone over it. there. Was someone here. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Hi, I'm Annabelle Gower from Imperial College Business School. Thanks, Woody, for a fantastic talk. I had a question about how the the different clusters with their different languages or use of languages, how do they relate to what some people call institutional logics? Okay, and where was the third one? Here. Yeah, great. Okay, we'll be wrapping up in a few minutes.
2: Mm -hmm.
4: Um, thank you. I'm a student at the London School of Economics, and you mentioned in the lecture that civil society has not been colonized by management or science. So um, could you please elaborate a bit more on that point, and to what extent do you think these three disciplines co-vary with one another? Thank you.
1: Great. Let me see if I can put those three together, because they're, they're actually really important. Um, so the first question was criteria for inclusion. Um, so... You know, how you sample is is a, you know, a core question in, in any kind of social science endeavor, um, and most of the time when we sample, we bring our biases as um, as researchers to to a sample. The cool thing about the web crawler is it is independent of our choice. What the web crawler does by starting with a with a um, an initial population that experts agreed are in, it then follows them. Okay, on the basis of web links. So every organization in the sample has at least at a minimum one web link to another member of the sample. And on average, the median connections are 32 connections. So this is a densely connected world. What would it look like if we had, if you will, outsiders? You know, with only one link, but nobody referred back to it, you would have a much bigger periphery. But we cut the sample by saying there had to be a reference. Okay, now that's a you know that's a methodological decision to make, and it it makes for a more connected, coherent world. Alex is asking a really important question of maybe you were on the outside and you figured a way to get in. Okay, or you were moderately connected and over time you become intensely connected. All right, those would change the dynamics, but the the criteria for inclusion are actually based on the set of connections referenced on web pages. Okay, so imagine in similar work we've taken scientific papers and looked at citation networks. Um, or patents and looked at patent citations so those you know those have a realist quality to them okay. Now Annabelle asked this question about well aren't these communities reflective of certain logics and I want to say yes and no okay so the yes side is we clearly to to help in the explanation give a label we say associational world we say scientific world we say um, uh, managerial world and and you might think well those sound like logics to me but my no is unlike work that talks about logics the composition of the entities in these are really varied okay so we have nonprofits charities foundations and for profits in civil society okay in the management world we have some of the leading west coast foundations Hewlett um, uh, Packard um, uh, Irvine along with Deutsche Bank Accenture okay in the scientific world we have MIT we have Hopkins uh, but we also have the World Bank and the Gates Foundation all right so these are very disparate type organizations not necessarily, you know, of a common form, all right, that in one sense, their forms are already hybridized as they produce these new ways of looking at the world, okay? And I think that's a really, you know, that's a very cool feature. All right, so now to this last point, um, civil society not being colonized. Um, You know, one of my... um, uh, grad students on this project. It's a wonderful woman, Karina Kloos, who got her PhD and said, you know, I want to change the world. I don't want to be an academic. And so she went off to work for Landessa, um, and she's the first director of research for an Indigenous Rights Organization in Seattle. Um, and her view would would be you don't want to say civil society has not been colonized, you want to see civil society colonizing you know, the world is what she would like to see it expanding, not you know, under attack or under assault. Um, so my definition of not being colonized is it has not fallen prey to having to speak the language of management or the language of science in order to participate. The actual true north, if you recall, was for these other parties to participate, they have to at least start trying to talk about civil society themes. They could mean different things. And there's no question there, you know, there's some interesting organizations that some might think are, are, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing. But the challenge, and this actually goes to questions about impact, is the study when those organizations are in these interstitial spaces, do they act differently than they would have in the worlds they came from? And I think the evidence that we find so far is they do. Okay, um, so that's what I mean by um, we, we don't see ostracism, we don't see colonization, we don't see domination, and we see these conversational bridges developing. So Judy says that's a, um, a, a positive phrase to end on. Um,
0: I was just going to yeah. say I was just <laughs> going to say that.
1: Well, I won't steal it. Then you'll say it better than me because I'm tired. No, well, so, thank you. it's been
0: an incredible pleasure to have you at the LSE. I don't know if you've spoken here before, but I've never heard you. And I'm, and I'm sure everyone's just been absolutely delighted. It was incredibly interesting and stimulating. So um, join me in, in thanking Woody for a fantastic talk.